We sing through uh, raging storms. Um, Matt Boswell, we observed last week, uh, reminds us that Christians don't uh, sing around our, our troubles, we sing through them. And, uh, and that's the gift that lamentation, repenting provide the church. Uh, that's why we're in this series in Joel. Uh, before uh, we, we get into the text, I just want to pause and, and thank all of you for your, your thoughtful cards, uh, your, your kind words, uh, your, your texts. Uh, I, I speak for uh, myself and, and the Daly family, but I'm, I'm pretty confident I speak for the Hales as well. Uh, thank you for your kindness and your, your love and your compassion. I don't know how people do grief by themselves. Uh, I don't know how people do loss uh, alone without a particular a church family. So uh, it's just good to be a brother uh, with you all uh, as we follow Jesus. So thank you. Um, I was, uh, <laughs> after last week, last week was weird, of course, you know, we only had the 830 service and there were a few of you and we started this new series. So I'm going to give you a little recap here real quick. But um, we were kind of, I, I was mentioning how getting into Joel and this whole message about lamentation and and what to do with our sadness. I felt like I was two years too late with this series, given you know what's been in the rearview mirror the past two years, 2020 and 2021. Uh, John Fisk <laughs> texted me after the sermon last week, and he said, uh, a sermon with a Gandalf glint in his eye, I can hear it through the text. He says, a sermon is never late, nor is it early. It arrives precisely when it is needed. So, uh, and that has been true for me more um, this week than I, I really was banking on. Um, we need a place to go with our grief. And we need a place to go when we experience loss, when things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And, uh, and that's why Joel is a gift. Um, last week, we, we started out by just observing there's this lament, this nationwide lament. There's, there's drought, there's, there's locusts, there's um, joy and gladness are dried up. Um, that's what uh, Joel had described this, this locust plague, the cutting locust, the swarming locust, the hopping locust, the destroying locust. Everything is gone. There's weeping, wailing, mourning, and lamenting. Everything is dried up. Everyone is dried up. And gladness is dried up from the children of man. So just as a, uh, to kind of orient us, as, you know, some of you are, are new to the series, particularly um, missing last week, like, if you were to have a chart, a bar chart, you know, one bar for every year, let's just do it that way, we'll make it linear, um, of your life, and those bars were going to measure, like, how much did you laugh in this particular year, this particular year, this particular year? What, what did the past two years look like? Like, my guess is it was kind of a dip, right? I mean, maybe, maybe it was a precipitous dip, but there was a dip. And how much laughter came out of you in 2021 and 2022? And maybe you can relate very, very well, you know, to what Joel is describing here, chapter 1, verse 12, where gladness dries up from the children of man. And you just feel dried up. In fact, um, or, or to, to kind of turn that analogy on its head, you're just filled with tears, not laughter. Um, and we need a place to go. Uh, with that grief. And that's what the gift of lament is, is it teaches us to turn from the pain to God and pray, um, Lord, this isn't the way things are supposed to be. I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done. That's what lament is. 
And, and it teaches us to repent. It, turn, it teaches us to turn from our own you know, sin, from acknowledging, you know what, I can be part of the pain. I'm part of the pain. God save me, right? That, that's the gift of the prophets. That's why uh, we're in the, the prophet Joel. Let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm gonna finish chapter one, uh, start in verse 13. Just wanted to give you some context as we jump in. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. Well, their herd of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up. And fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we cry to you. We call out to you. You're the one to whom we go with our, our lament and our, our sadness, um, our distress and our confusion. We pray that you would hear us, that you would, that you would know, that you would see, and that you would act. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> All right. All um, right. <clears throat> So what do you see in these first couple of verses, 13 and, and 14? You see the language of lament. Uh, you see things like sackcloth. You see things like vigils and fasting and, and solemnity. These are the, the, the markers of mourning and of sadness and, and people who are crying out to the Lord. Um, I want to just restate it. I'm sorry if it's redundant for those of you who were here last week, but uh, because of the uniqueness of the, the snow and, and so on, I, I want to just make sure we all have our bearings as we move into this series in Joel. Uh, what we're recognizing is that you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't enter the kingdom of God without lamenting and repenting. So when, when Jesus got together with Nicodemus, do you remember John chapter 3? And he's, it's night. Nicodemus is prominent. Pharisees, kind of a big guy, big wig in, in Jewish circles. And, but he's fascinated by Jesus. He wants to know more. And Jesus just doesn't mince any words. He says to Nicodemus, this expert, you know, this guy is a godly man. Everybody esteems him and, you know, respects him. Jesus says, look, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus is making very, very clear. This, these are the requirements. 
Uh, so I want to put it in another way, like unless you lament, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do we mean by that? Well, uh, lamentation looks up. Lamentation looks to God. It looks, looks around, it sees the brokenness, the devastation, the disease, the destruction, the despair, the death, whatever it may be. And it, and it turns from that and it looks to God and says, God, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Like, do something, please. That's what lamentation is. Turns from the pain and, and looks to God. So you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you lament, unless you have an eye for what should be and what God can do about it. Does that make sense? Otherwise, you're not heavenly oriented. You're just kind of lost in the pain. But that's what lamentation turns from the pain and takes it to God. Same thing is true with repentance. So you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't aspire to the kingdom of God. You can't long for the kingdom of God without lamenting. You can't enter the kingdom of God without repenting. Because what repenting does is unless we realize that, you know what, uh, I am part of the sickness that I'm asking God to heal. I'm part of the brokenness that I'm asking God to fix. I'm part of the crookedness I'm asking God to straighten. I'm part of the, the sickness, you know. I'm part of the, the wrongness that I'm asking God to make right. So repentance means we're turning from our trespasses uh, to God. Lamenting means returning from tragedy to God. Repenting means returning from trespasses to God. Both are required. Both are necessary if we're going to see the kingdom of God and enter the kingdom of God. That's why Joel is really important. That's why the prophets are a gift to the church. I know we don't read them often. They kind of like, oh, who wants, who wants to read about all this heavy, you know, lamenting and hard stuff? Well, unless we do it, we don't get language built into our heart and our mind for what to do when the wheels fall off. Because the wheels fall off. They've been falling off, and they, they likely will, will continue. We need to cry out to the Lord. That's what we're being told to do in verse 14. Gather the elders, all the inhabitants of the land, to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. That's what lamenting is. That's what repenting is. It's a God-directed cry. So, what are we crying about? Well, verse 15 and verse 16, you know, outline what's going on. Alas for the day, it's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God, right? That's this refrain that gladness has dried up from the, the sons of man um, and here you get it again, joy and gladness are, are gone from the, the house of our God. Um, there's something really significant going on here, especially in verse 15. And if you, if you missed it, look again at what Joel is saying. The day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Let me just pause and let that sink in. What do you do with that phrase? What do you do as a person who I'm believing, I'm trusting, you take the Bible seriously, you believe it's God's word, it's inerrant, it's inspired, it's perfect. And yet, how does destruction come from the Almighty? Um, what's going on there? Well, we'll get to that in a second. What I want to focus on 
is that the, there's, a, there's a literary thing going on. Just the, the Hebrew words sound like there's sort of a, 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 um, a poetry happening uh, between the word destruction and almighty. Uh, translators would be within their rights to say something sort of along these lines, that destruction comes from the destroyer or might comes from the almighty. What we need to be asking ourselves is how do we make sense of God's goodness and sovereignty in the face of disaster? When joy and gladness are cut off from us. Those of us, these are God's people. This isn't the Egyptians that are suffering the locust plague and the drought and so on this time back in, as it was back in Exodus. This is Israel. And what do we do when bad things happen to God's people? Is God still, you know, almighty? Is he still on his throne? Um, the, the name almighty is important. <clears throat> there are different words in, in the Old Testament that we run across where God describes himself. The, the most common title for, for God that we see in the Bible is uh, the Hebrew word is Elohim. You've probably heard that one before. And, and when you see it in English, it's translated the word Lord, and it's how we typically spell Lord. And then you get another title for God, and it is Yahweh or, Yeho or Jehovah. Uh, that is Lord with all the, all the capital letters, uh, and that's what is uh, dominant in the book of Joel. That's God's covenant name. Elohim or is just God or Lord uh, is kind of the generic name, and lots of other religions or, or you know, people who have a a deity would use a similar name, but Yahweh is covenantal. Yahweh is God's personal name with his people. I'm your God and you're my people. And then you get the Almighty, and that's the title Shaddai. And some of you have heard that title before. And that really has to do with God's power. Uh, another translation for Shaddai instead of Almighty would be the God of heaven. So in places like Psalm 115, we read our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. So Shaddai is a word that points to God's power, his sovereignty, his control over all things. And destruction is coming from the Almighty. Destruction coming from the powerful one, the one who can control and, and, is, and control all things because he's sovereign. So what's the, um, let me ask you this as we, as we think about this relationship between destruction and God's power. What's the dominant biblical picture of heaven? If, if the title Shaddai means the Almighty or the Lord of heaven, What's the dominant picture of heaven? Um, when, when people think of heaven, what do they think of? Uh, you know, the, the people in, at work and at school have lots of, of different associations. They may just think of heaven as this billowy, cloudy place. We get that. Uh, they may think of heaven uh, as, you know, some other concept, kind of a Dis Disney-esque, you know, magic kingdom. Um, maybe people think of it as the the 19th hole or, you know, the eternal spa day or the all-you-can-eat buffet. I mean, there's all kinds of really dumb ideas about heaven. But the dominant biblical picture of heaven, maybe you're not, you know, you're like, yeah, it's none of those. But I, I don't know. What is the dominant 
biblical picture of heaven. It's a throne room. It's a throne. The dominant biblical picture of heaven is God's power and might and dominance on display. He's the sovereign God of God and Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings and nobody uh, can thwart his power. So listen to Psalm 103. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom is over all. Isaiah 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. By the way, Stephen, when he's being stoned to death in Acts chapter seven, is quoting Isaiah 66 about God's throne and God's power and God's sovereignty, even though he's experiencing destruction. And in Revelation 4, after this, I looked, behold, a door standing open in heaven. And what did John the apostle see? Uh, He hears this voice saying, come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. That's the dominant biblical picture of heaven. It's a throne room with one seated on the throne. Here's something that I think might surprise you to hear this. So um, Elohim, Yahweh are the the most common titles for God. Almighty shows up a a number of times in the Old Testament, uh, six times in Genesis, uh, once in Exodus, a couple times in Numbers. It keeps showing up. Uh, Ruth has it twice, the Psalms a couple of times, Isaiah once, Ezekiel a couple of times. This is the only time in the book of Joel that we'll, we'll see the title Shaddai, the Lord of heaven, uh, you know, God's almighty power referenced. And there's one other book in the Old Testament where it shows up, a bunch. It shows up twice as many times as all the other references in the Old Testament combined. The title Shaddai. God's almighty power on display, the Lord of heavens. And you know what book it is? Job. Job. The the one book in the Old Testament where people are perplexed about why does God allow hard things, bad things, tragic things happen to his beloved And nonetheless, God has ascribed all power, all sovereignty. He's in charge. There's a throne in heaven and he's seated on it. So what do we do with this? Well, we have to reckon with the truth, the reality that God is sovereign. That means that nothing's a happy accident. There's, there's, he's connected to everything, even the hard things. Um, in Isaiah chapter 13, you get uh, an echo of Joel 1.15, right? So look, look at our passage here in, in verse 15. And it talks about the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. This isn't unique to Joel. Isaiah says the same thing. There's a relationship between hard things and God's sovereignty. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. There's no God besides me. I'm the Lord and there is no other. God is absolutely sovereign And he says, I form the light and create the darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And if that doesn't start to, to bend your brain a little bit, 
If that, if that doesn't start to kind of make you uncomfortable, if that doesn't kind of give you a little bit of pause, let me just remind you, this isn't unique to the Old Testament. Some people like to say, well, that's the Old Testament. That's just, you know, I don't know what to do with that. I just kind of don't even read it, and I just move on to Jesus and the New Testament. Because Jesus kind of makes more sense to me, and I get it. Well, he does make more sense, but, but he doesn't get us out of this conundrum. He doesn't let you off the hook. He's the Lord, and he's sovereign over all things. He's got all power, all might. And don't you remember Jesus in the temple and the court of the Gentiles? And he makes this whip out of a bunch of cords, and he's, he's creating disaster among the money changers, flipping over the tables, destroying their business, and you know, casting them out of the, the court of the Gentiles. Because my house is going to be a house of prayer for all the nations. He's got a redeeming purpose to it. But nonetheless, there's a little bit of destruction going on. So this isn't, there's, there's no you know, hermetic seal between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They blend, they overlap, and Jesus is the God of the Old Testament on display in front of us. So what do you do? What do we do every time people ask about the relationship between God's sovereignty uh, and, for instance, like human responsibility? Good question. It's a legitimate mystery. How do we reckon with the fact that God is almighty and that we, all, we also are responsible for our choices and when we have a say in this thing too? We're not puppets on a string. And in tied to that question about the relationship between God's will and our free will is another important question. Not just between sovereignty and responsibility, but also between sovereignty and suffering. If God's on his throne, why does he allow tragedy, suffering, difficulty, death? These, these questions overlap between Sovereignty and responsibility and sovereignty and suffering. And, and we'll, uh, I want you to indulge me for a second. I don't know, this didn't go great in the first service, but I don't have any other choice. <laughs> Here we are. Um, a little bit of a history lesson. And I'm trying to explore this tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility, God's sovereignty and our suffering. So the front of your bulletin is the picture that um, a, a photographer, famous photography uh, photographer, uh, named Dorothea Sayer took, uh, I'm sorry, Dorothea Lang took, uh, this is the migrant mother. You've probably seen this photo before. I mean, odds are really, really high. This is not the first time you've seen this woman. This photo was taken in 1936. Um, and Dorothea Lang was uh, working for the government documenting uh, as a photojournalist, the Dust Bowl, right? You've heard of the Roaring Twenties. Well, the Thirties were called the Dirty Thirties because of the drought that, uh, that took over the Midwest and really like famine-like conditions. Uh, and people were just, it was on the heels of the depression, just scratch subsistence. People literally are starving to death. And you can see this woman, she's got two of her, uh, she's got an older daughter who's not in the picture, uh, two uh, you know, smaller children who are just, you know, in despair on her shoulders, and you can't really see very well, but she also has an infant uh, in her lap. How, how would you describe the look on her face? Perplexed? Maybe a little bit hopeless? 
where's the next meal coming from? This picture was taken in a shanty camp, a tent camp um, that Dorothea Lang found when she saw a little wooden arrow that said uh, pea, pea picking uh, farm. You know, so these are migrant workers just scratching out subsistence, trying to, fit, trying to just keep their bellies full in the midst of the dust bowl. They called the, the dust storms black blizzards uh, because they would just rise out of the Great Plains and the dust, the topsoil from the Great Plains was being eroded and the wind was carrying it way up into the sky uh, and, then, and the dust would drift down like snow. Literally, people were shoveling it with snow shovels to get it out of the doorways. It would get in through the windows, through the cracks and everything. It was just all over everything, on your skin, on your food. Everything had a grit to it. It was awful. Some of the dust storms were so bad, there was one in 1935 on April 14th called Black Sunday. And on Black Sunday, there was this huge wall of billowing sand and dust that started in Oklahoma and as many as three million tons of Midwest topsoil traveled 2,000 miles to the East Coast and dumped everywhere from uh, New York to Washington, D.C. On that black Sunday, people in New York couldn't see across the Hudson Bay to see the Statue of Liberty because of the dust storm. People couldn't see the top of the U.S. Capitol building, the dome, because of the dust storm. And these drought conditions, there was a, uh, a domino effect that because there's drought and because of the bad farming practices uh, and then because of those environmental circumstances, then the locusts came. Our dust bowl in the Midwest in the 1930s sounds an awful lot like the circumstances in Israel in Joel's time where he's describing drought and no, no crops and famine and locust plagues and all of that stuff. That's exactly what's going on you know, in the Midwest. Uh, FDR in his fireside chat on September 6, 1936 said, I shall never forget the fields of wheat so blasted by heat that they cannot be harvested. And I shall never forget field after field of corn stunted, earless, stripped of leaves for what the sun left, the grasshoppers took. And I saw brown pastures which could not keep a cow on 50 acres. There wasn't enough grass on 50 acres to keep one cow alive. That's how bad the drought was. And then the swarms of grasshoppers came. Uh, the swarms would be so thick that they would block out the sun that no one could you know, see the light of the sun anymore and the corn stalks were eaten to the ground, the fields are bare, and since the, the, since the 30s, conditions haven't been like that. So what am I getting at? I'm using this because it reminds me of Joel, and it's this circumstance where you kind of wonder, couldn't God do something about the drought? Couldn't God do something about the locusts? Couldn't God do something you know, to make things better? Why are people suffering so much? How many people were praying back then? How many God-fearing people are in the Midwest were praying and asking for relief? And what's going on? There have been droughts before in the Midwest, but nothing, nothing could, could compare to the Dust Bowl. 
The Dust Bowl was a result of human ignorance as well as, as arrogance, of finiteness and fallenness. Not every disaster that falls on our head comes from above, if you know what I mean. So there's this dynamic between, yes, God's sovereign, but we are also responsible, and there is this reality of suffering. And there's a mystery to, to how all of these play together, but there's some answers in our finiteness and fallenness. So for instance, we look at the, the, the dust ball and we think, oh, terrible natural disaster, but not so, not, not, not so simple. Because there's more than just a lack of rain. There's been lacks of rain before in the Midwest, but what had happened uniquely in the dust bowl was that right after the Civil War, there were all these homestead acts and people are trying to populate the, the plains and you know, get those states incorporated. And you know, there's this huge movement, all the pioneers, we wouldn't have you know, Little House on the Prairie without the, the, those, those um, homestead acts. And so everybody's heading out there. And you know who's heading out there? People are looking for a new start. They're leaving the cities. They're leaving the East Coast and they're moving out and they're, you know, a whole new experience, whole new life. They are completely inexperienced. That's what a new experience means. They don't know how to farm. I mean, they know how to farm. They know how to, you know, you've got to plow the land. You put seed in it and you hope for rain. That's how you farm. But what they didn't know is that, well, if you farm, if you plow in perfectly straight lines, guess what happens? The wind and the rain erode your soil. But if you do contour plowing, this is what they found out. This is how they stopped the, the dust bowl from happening. If you follow the contour of the land, then the, you get half, you know, erosion and uh, the wind and the rain erosion are reduced by half at least. So there's sort of this finiteness, this, this ignorance that people didn't know what they were doing. And we can lament our finiteness. We go into things and we think we know what to do and then we find out, you know what, I didn't know. And there are contingencies we didn't plan for, and we're kind of at the end of ourselves. And we lament, Lord, help. And yes, he's on his throne, but we're still active, and somehow those work together, and there's mystery there. But you know what? It means that we have an agency in what's hard. And the pain isn't just coming from out there. It's coming as a result of us. And more than just our finiteness and our ignorance, there's also fallenness and arrogance. This idea that, you know, we can tame the West. This, you know, did you ever hear about the manifest destiny, the sense that there was, a, there was God's call to populate the West? We had to do it. You know, it's sort of this, this uh, sense that it was a sacred duty. But let's also acknowledge the fact that wheat prices were going, shooting right through the roof and everybody's going, wow, we got a cash crop on our hands. Wheat and corn, we got to plow more of the uh, indigenous grasses up, turn them over and just start planting wheat and corn, wheat and corn. And guess what? Wheat and corn are not drought resistant. Indigenous grasses are. And so the more they planted because the wheat prices and corn prices were going up, the, the less protection there was from erosion. So some of that greed starts playing into it. Some of that arrogance starts playing it. And you know what? We can repent over our arrogance and our fallenness. So we can lament our finiteness. We can repent over our fallenness. And we can ask God help. 
help us? What role might we be playing in the pain that we are experiencing, the pain that others are experiencing? Lamenting turns us to God. We cry out to God for help for what we can't control. Repenting does uh, turn us from our pain and that, that we're experiencing to God with the question, at least, Lord, open my heart and, and search me and know me and see my anxious thoughts, see what hurtful way is in me. At least you humble yourself enough to ask the question, am I a contributor to the pain that's going on around me? And that's some of the gift of repenting, <laughs> lamenting and repenting. Lamenting, I just made up a new word. That's cool. All right, so let's, let's get to where, where Joel is taking us at the end of chapter one. So what I think is remarkable is you've got all of this pain, all of this despair that's going on in Israel at the time. Uh, people are mourning, they're weeping, they're wailing, they're, they're calling for, for fasts, they're, they're, they're doing vigils in sackcloth because there's no food, there's a drought, there's no wine, there's, everything's dried up. What I didn't realize until just studying Joel for this series is like, I've always known, like we know, you know, I know that God cares about the animals. You've known that since Sunday school and the flannel boards with Noah's Ark. God cares about the animals and he sends them two by two onto the ark. But if you go, you can do this later today, go through chapter one of Joel and you'll discover that a third of these 20 verses, like roughly a third of them, almost seven verses, aren't talking about the, the pain and the despair that people are going through. They're pointing to the, the impact on the land and on the animals. Like God cares about how the cattle are doing and how the sheep are doing. Look at verse 18. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are, are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer, right? So to you, O Lord, I call, look at these animals. Look at the verse 20. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water books are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Like the herds of cattle are perplexed. You can see the confusion in their eyes, the hunger that's there, the thirst. And Joel's going, you know, if you're not gonna answer our lament for the sake of your people, do it for the sake of the cows. Answer our prayer for the sake of the sheep. You know, you're in a desperate place when you start to wonder, does God care about me? Given my circumstances, given what I'm suffering, does God really care? You know it's bad when you start going, well, if he doesn't care about me, maybe he cares about my cat or my dog. And if you're not gonna answer my prayer on behalf of myself, would, on behalf of Fido and Felix, would you please answer God? That's a desperate place to be. It's terrible to be in a place where you're wondering if God cares about you, but it's, it's not foreign, I don't think, to any of us. If you go through enough suffering for a long enough period of time, you start to kind of go, okay, God, what's up? Do you still love me? Jesus had some words to say to his disciples. He said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you who to fear. 
Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus wants us to know two things. That God has sovereign, supreme authority. He's the one who has power over heaven and hell, life and death. And that he cares about you. He cares about you more than you could ever imagine. He has not forgotten about you. I don't know what your circumstances indicate, but that doesn't mean that he has checked out on you. He hasn't turned his back on you. He doesn't love your dog or your cat more than you. I promised you because he just told us he loves you and he's proved it and he proves it on the cross. He loves you more than your cat, more than your dog and more than the sparrows because he didn't die for them. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. John 13 tells us on the night he was betrayed, you know, he, he took off his outer garment, he took off his clothes, he wrapped a towel around his waist. He knew where, he was, where he'd come from, who he was, and where he was going, and he, and he took the form of a servant. And that's a picture of what he did on the macro level. He had all authority in heaven and on earth. And despite his right to judge our sins. He got up off of his throne, came down to earth to atone for our sins. He could have judged them, but he atoned for them. And he did it on a cross. God pursued us even when we were sinners. Yes, our sins in a very real sense are offensive to a holy God. Just as somebody else's sins against you offend you, they hurt you, they estrange you from people who sin against you. Our sins do that. But that's not all there is to our relationship with him. We are more than the worst thing we've ever done. We are more than our sins. God pursues us even when we were sinners because he loved us despite our sin. And his love is greater than our sins. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 5. And he goes to great lengths. And he says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, more, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Paul uses that logic to say, look, if he didn't spare his own son but gave him for us all, how much more will he not also along with him graciously give you all things? If he pursued you when you were his enemy, there is no way you can be separated from his love now. No way. Yes, there's, there's mystery related to how can God be on his throne and there still be disasters and death and suffering. I don't get it. I'm not here to solve that mystery for you. We have to live with that. But we know that God's revealed himself in two ways. And we, we say it often here in corporate worship. We say it every time we say the Apostles' Creed. We said it today. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. God, the Father Shaddai. 
He's on his throne and he's my father. He's the judge of all and he loves me. Both are true. Both are true. If God through Christ would suffer on the cross for you when you were still in your sins, what could possibly keep him from loving you now that your sins have been removed from you as far as the east is from the west? There's nothing that's going to separate you from his love. I know that the storm of our circumstances, those winds blow hard. And they feel like they're going to topple you. But the cross is God's literal anchor in the ground to keep you from being blown away and being tossed on the winds. You and I have an anchor for our souls. It's the cross. It's his proof. It's his evidence that He's going to take away our sins, and the empty tomb is the proof that he's going to renew all things. Some may give more credence to their circumstances. They may think that the reality is what, I, you know, I'm suffering. And they may think that there's no way God can care about us given what they're suffering. But the rest of us give more credence to the cross, not to our circumstances, to the cross. And, they, and we reason that there's no way God couldn't care for us because of what he has suffered. Does that make sense? We may not understand our suffering, but Jesus is the sovereign God who suffers with us. Let's pray to him. Lord, we are um, thankful that you've revealed yourself to us as the God who is Sovereign, who reigns, who's on a throne. But also the God who's compassionate and gracious and who's on a cross. And we don't understand how both can be true, but they are gloriously true. And I know we'll celebrate those truths in eternity. Uh, For now, just help us to grow in our appreciation for both. And help us to trust you in in the pain and the storm and the loss and the devastation. It doesn't mean you're any less sovereign, but it also doesn't mean you're any less loving. So we thank you for Jesus who took away our sins, who's made us your sons and your daughters, who's given us an anchor for our souls so that we can trust you in the storm. Teach us to, to lament and to repent and to draw near to you, to call out to God in the midst of that. We ask in Jesus' name.